everybody for coming. Uh, as you all know, this is the first session in um, 12 attended seminars on Amazon citizenship. Uh, Claire will be giving a, a briefing of the whole idea, the background, and where we're heading to. Uh, I'll be setting the rules of the game, as Claire said it. <laughs> uh, uh, we're expecting Dr. Lauren to give us a, to give a presentation of about 40 minutes. Uh, then we'll have a discussion. We thought of a break in between, but since we're very close to each other and the uh, uh, refreshments and pastries are here, so please feel free to, to eat and drink uh, in the meantime. We can have a break anytime uh, everybody feels so. Uh, I would also like to ask everybody to introduce themselves, so if anybody doesn't know everybody. Starting from myself. Please. <laughs> I work at Moab and Financial Administrative Officer and I work also at Kuzaiti University. Selim Tamari from the IBS. Peggy Johnson from Jerusalem Quarterly and Assorted. I'm Lauren Banco. Um, I'm here from SOAS in London. My name is Leandro. I work at Rewalk. Wow, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fast you do because you have a fast yeah. people want to know what you do. So yeah, I'm an architect, I'm from Brazil. I'm trained as an architect, I love my brother. I'm studying landscape architecture at Harvard and spending one year in Palestine working through work. And I accompany my uh, partner, Mona Lisa. She's a Fulbright fellow. So. Mm -hmm. And I am Shara. Um, I'm Josh Rathbone, I'm a former student of Florence and I'm studying in Nablus at the moment. Studying what was? Arabic. Ah, novel language. Do you know the difference? Ramallah and Ramallah? Did you notice anything? No, okay. Ramallah or Ramallah? Come on. There is a difference. There is something. This is a sensitive point. And that difference. And that difference. And that difference. Carol Khoury from IPS. I'm Claire Bebron from East Coast. We just partnered with IPS for this scenario. So yeah, I'll, I'll, this is the, as said, our launching seminar for the Syria. What was designed uh, to be more workshop than any kind of lecturing. So for those who, well, hopefully for all of you who will be attending on a regular basis, if there are some suggestions of things that uh, you're uh, feel free to, to, tell, them, to tell us. Um, well, I, I wanted to sort of um, say a few words about what this whole idea of acts of citizenship because obviously it's very <coughs> peculiar uh, idea it's uh, it's uh, being drawn from the work of Isin, uh well Engin uh, Isin I think that's the way it pronounces Turkish and uh, especially two texts uh, which I think at some point we will uh, circulate is theorizing acts of citizenship and citizenship in flux, the figure of the activist citizen. So to cut long story short, what 
what's the view of Ising in terms of citizenship studies? It's like Yuri Davis is one of the uh, founder of the field, academic field of citizenship studies. There are three registers of citizenships. The first one is citizenships in law, and we all know of it, obviously, which is like a constitutional and common law entity. Uh, every state um, has a citizenship, it's a sort of legal technique of uh, ma managing its population, entry and exit has to do with sovereignty and territory. But that's not, I mean, that has been researched, that's not exactly what um, we want to focus only, even though, well, we have to take into account this one. Um, there is citizenship in practice, which is different from this citizenship in paper. And the citizenship in uh, practice doesn't uh, necessarily overlap with what citizenship in law dictates. And that's where, um, the, that's, br that's the bridge into which the acts of citizenship fit. Because this citizenship in practice does reflect certain things that people want to do, that people think they have the right to do, even though it's not in, in, um, in, on the paper, and that don't exist necessarily. So it's the way they have this sense of claim and that makes them do things illegally because basically in paper that's not what they ought to do but in practice that's what, what they actually do. So um, I think what was interested here in the Palestinian case is to see what exactly were this kind of practices because obviously citizenship in, in paper is kind of narrow. Um, and um, then the third thing that it, um, that Professor Isin is looking at citizen community theory. That's what we do here in the workshop, trying to make sense of this uh, difference between citizenship in law and citizenship in practice. Um, the acts of citizenship itself, which is in the little rational, it's, it does offer this approach whereby we investigate an action um, that consider actors that are not recognized as legal subjects that would constitute themselves into political subjects. So it's, it was theorized in the context of European um, illegal sine papiles or sans papier, this kind of things. But I thought, and, and Professor Inzik thought as well, because he's looking at citizenship, how it is theorized outside of the Eurocentric approach, I thought it would be interesting as well to sort of explore. And once again, this is all explorative. This is. Uh, this workshop is not meant to be public because um, we're exploring different avenues. Thought of applying it here in Palestine. Um, basically, yeah, this is a very much a shift in theoretical approach toward the inclusion of new practices. Um, that formal conception of citizenship did not include. Um, so um, I'm not going to I'm not going to be um, much longer because I, I was meant only to um, um, to give this sort of five minutes uh, setting. The only thing I wanted to add as well is that we've sort of designed the sequencing of the sessions, starting with more historical um, um, session on um, on citizenship, nationality, sort of trying to think maybe again for those who have already already thought through the. Um, um, uh, the issue, but uh, these different terms and having kind of a clear understanding of how they were constructed. So we have like two sessions, we have Lauren and then Emilio David who are going to look at um, 
the, uh, the way Palestinian citizenship was historically constructed, Lauren stops more or less at the uh, Palestinian Charter, and then Emilio will look at the basic law. Then we have somebody, uh, Elizabeth Longnet, who will think about translating citizenship, what it means in different language, and she would probably uh, allow herself to speak in Arabic, uh, because we thought that was extremely important too. If we want to de uh, centralize or Euro-centralize citizenship, then it was essential to have actually one session on thinking what we, how we speak it in Arabic. Uh, and then we try to, um, to really go into this uh, idea of acts of citizenship, how people actually construct their claims uh, outside of the law, with, uh, with the rest of the session, and we'll have a professor uh, is incoming, so if my presentation was not clear enough, you have the author actually you know, to bombard with all your questions at some point in January. And then my own, um, I mean, I used uh, a lot of the theory uh, for the uh, Bidun in Gulf countries in Kuwait, so who actually are stateless people, Bidun Jinsiya, who actually, you know, um, really fitted into the theory, and I'll come back when I, I've been speaking, about making a rupture in the order of things, uh, going and, and, and positioning yourself as the, um, as the um, uh, possessing, well, or claimant of rights, let's say. And then we'll have a, a couple of final, um, well, final sessions on Palestine, and that will be it. So, um, thank you for coming, for attending, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy the, uh, the design of the workshop. So today we have um, Lauren Banco. Um, we're very pleased to uh, to start with her in because um, it really fits nicely in terms of the uh, historical uh, development of the seminar. Lauren uh, is a uh, teaching fellow at SOAS in the uh, history department, and uh, she has just authored a PhD thesis under the supervision of Nelida Fukaro entitled The Invention of Palestinian Citizenship Discourses and Practices, 1918-1937. Um, Lauren, over to you. Uh, another thing I wanted to add, Lauren's got 40 minutes, 30 minutes for her paper, but 10 minutes to bring, uh, well, to highlight what she found interesting in a, in a theoretical text that she picked. Okay, thank you. Um, and I should also thank IFPO and um, the Institute as well for inviting me to give the first seminar. And I'm hoping um, that my going sort of first does offer some benefit in maybe setting somewhat of a historical context to citizenship in Palestine specifically. Um, I think most of you, maybe not all of you, got my draft paper that was circulated and the theoretical text. I'm going to mostly stick to the draft paper that I sent around. Um, I know there's quite a lot in it, so if I don't get through all of it, there's a lot that we can think of for the discussion and, and in questions and so forth. But since I sent that paper, I did a bit more thinking. Um, and I guess the main theme that I want to maybe discuss after the paper and somewhat during it um, is the fact that, and it, this might come up later in other sessions as well, that actually shaping the vocabulary of citizenship, whether in Arabic, specifically for Palestine, or I guess in English as well, I would think, and maybe some of you would agree, is also a sort of act of citizenship, sort of an active way to construct the terminology of citizenship, of nationality, um, 
my paper highlights a bit of the problems between the terms for nationality, the terms for citizenship in Palestine um, during the British Mandate Administration, which is really when I guess we see the only time where there was something that legally, internationally, was called um, Palestinian citizenship and that there were recognized Palestinian citizens with passports, international standing, etc. But the vocabulary coming out of the mandate period, even going back to, say, the Ottoman Empire, um, the late Ottoman Empire, did in some ways um, shape the vocabulary of, of Palestinian citizenship under the British, but it also very much influenced the way that the Palestinians, Syrians, uh, what became Lebanese, um, Jordanians, Iraqis, also understood as citizenship. Um, so I just wanted to, to sort of throw that out at you, that this idea of shaping vocabulary is also a sort of act of practicing citizenship, theorizing citizenship, that has something quite different to do with the way the law defines and constructs these terms. Um, so to give a bit of background to begin with, um, as I noted in the paper, this kind of making of Palestinian citizenship, or citizens, since the end of the Ottoman Empire and then into the British era, was both an ideological process um, and also meant changes to the political language and vocabulary of identity and belonging, which were sort of for the Palestinians the core um, notions for citizenship as a legal status that came later. So when you have the British um, occupy Palestine under the mandate after 1918, this is when you really see the kind of flourishing of the Arabic press, which contributed quite a bit to standardizing terminology that expressed belonging to the nation state in Palestine and elsewhere in the absence of any sort of Arab nation state to begin with. The terms for nationality, which I'm using, and this we can discuss as well, um, jinsia, and then for citizenship in law, something that Claire was talking about, uh, muatana, as well as the terms for civil rights, uh, hakuk madania, took precedence after 1918 over other older Ottoman terms for these statuses. And their meanings in the context of the mandate became familiar to readers and to a large segment of Palestinian society as the readership of newspapers grew. So again, these ideas of citizenship and nationality began to be understood by the public, um, not necessarily through legislation passed by the British, but rather through newspapers, through discussions, through other forums. The one thing that what I found in my research was that through the 1920s, 1930s, Arab writers, politicians, intellectuals used citizenship and nationality rather interchangeably um, when they were writing and, um, <clears throat> and speaking as well. And this discourse and the actions associated with it, so the discourse of citizenship, countered the definition of the citizen that the British provided through British colonial imperial legislation sort of imposed onto Palestine. It also countered the definition of the citizen in international treaties. Um, obviously, after the First World War, this is really when you see the beginning of citizenship being defined in international law. Um, nationality meaning something more with the introduction of passports, border controls, um, 
the end of sort of imperial uh, divisions <clears throat> and imperial subjecthood. The terms that accompanied this discourse in Palestine, such as Kalmiya, emphasize the synthesis of Palestinian nationality with a pan-Arab national identity, which I'll come back to a bit later in the paper. Um, I quoted in the paper Helen Haste, who has said that the construction of the citizen that in, in the construction of the citizen, historians should take into account the ways in which individuals negotiate rhetoric, meaning, and definitions of citizenship, and particularly the narrative that explains and justifies the citizen and the nation. And this is something that the Uri Davis article talks about a bit as well. <clears throat> in the case of Palestine during the era of British mandatory rule, the understanding of citizenship was directly linked to Ottoman-era social categories of Arab nationhood and a sense of an Arab ethnic identity. In 1925, the, um, the Citizenship Ordering Council was passed for Palestine by Great Britain, which in effect created a local citizenship independent of British nationality for Palestinians. However, the ideas of what nationality meant, what citizenship meant, had been discussed by the Arabs prior to the British kind of imposition of the citizenship law. And so you have nationalist political local leaders in Palestine agitating, claiming themselves as citizens um, for rights to citizenship that the British law did not provide. Control over their own government, rights to borders, rights to education, um, dealing with public works, financial administration, taxation, all of these things that the citizen in law, I suppose, has some take in through representative government in the contemporary sense. <clears throat> You have from 1925 the Palestinian leadership unanimously rejecting um, proposed legislation for advisory councils in Palestine, uh, as well as the British created electoral law. Um, the Palestinian leadership also disagreed with citizenship legislation on the basis that it was through citizenship legislation, the measures associated with it, that the British mandate could quite easily facilitate Jewish immigration, Jewish settlement, um, because of the way that Palestinian citizenship was structured, basically to give um, easy access for immigrants to obtain naturalization quite quickly. The Arab population really had very little say in the way that the British decided to legislate on citizenship. So it is necessary to place this idea of Arab nationality um, and Palestinian Jewish citizenship into a somewhat colonial context to explain the creation of Palestinian citizenship in 1925. And as a consequence of this law, the Arabs of Palestine first stressed their nationality um, as Arab nationals <clears throat> against the order that, that sort of favored Jewish immigrants. So it was in part a reaction to the British definition of Palestinian citizenship that led the Palestinian Arabs to actively express what they came to see as Palestinian Arab nationality, um, and then also to think of themselves as Palestinian citizens in law. Nationality was a term um, 
and I'm quoting another article here, with, quote, an ethnic dimension and indicated that a certain person belongs to a nation in an ethnic sense, while citizenship inter indicates inter alia the formal link between a person and a state. Um, so this sort of terminology is something I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. And the Yuri Davis article discusses this a bit as well talking about passport citizenship versus um, citizenship in law, residency. <clears throat> um, citizenship as a status to begin with in Palestine was in a sense made to separate the Arabs from Arabs in Syria, Arabs, in, uh, Arabs elsewhere, um, to kind of get rid of this idea of Arab nationality. And it was decades later, um, as some of you are familiar with, the 1988 um, Declaration of Statehood, Palestinian Declaration of Statehood, alluded to this same ideology whereby the state of Palestine was envisioned as an Arab state, part of a larger Arab nation, much in line with, by 1988, sort of fading ideals of pan-Arabism. <clears throat> So to go on to talk a bit about the, these acts of citizenship that the, um, the seminar will hopefully discuss a lot more in depth in the coming months, it's really the development of civic activism and the discussion of rights and duties that played a major role in the early alternative definitions of Palestinian citizenship. <clears throat> Ordinary Palestinians under the British and then after continue to express this idea of national rights with tactics or acts of citizenship that were meant to draw the attention of the British. Um, these include boycotting elections under the mandate, public demonstrations, um, petitioning the government in Jerusalem, in London, um, <clears throat> organizing different civil associations, um, clubs, groups, all these things that contribute to the formation of a kind of civic identity, um, but which are also sort of acts, at least I would say, acts of citizenship. But under British control, again, you have this idea that the understanding of citizenship came from the Ottoman context of nationality, which was granted by descent in a particular territory um, or residence. And this was really the kind of rhetoric that Palestinian leaders backed up to uh, defend their idea that all Palestinians should be treated as equal citizens, whereas the British citizenship law um, did tend to favor Jewish immigrants um, and often neglected um, giving citizenship to Palestinians despite um, them having been born in Palestine or resident in Palestine, if those particular individuals had emigrated from the territory. Um, and I talk about this a bit more in the paper, and um, there's a lot to be said for the, um, the issue of Palestinian Arab emigrants under the mandate, um, <clears throat> who either left Palestine before or after the Great War, um, but were unable to claim any type of citizenship because the British had deemed that they had left. Um, so they weren't entitled to having Palestinian citizenship unless they returned from abroad, um, <clears throat> made a promise to live in Palestine, um, leave their businesses, leave education where they were uh, abroad. <clears throat> 
And there are a lot of parallels between that, I suppose, and uh, the issue of some refugees today, which I think some of the later papers in the series will talk about. But one thing to say is that the status of Palestine's Arab emigrants does provide an interesting case study for acts of citizenship um, from the beginning of the mandate until today having this idea of Arabs in the diaspora very actively contributing to a sense of citizenship despite not living within uh, Palestinian territory. These particular emigrants in the 1920s after the citizenship law was passed um, and once they realized that they couldn't necessarily return as citizens um, as some of you might know, a lot of the Palestinians emigrated to places in Latin America, uh, Brazil, Mexico, even places like Cuba, Haiti. <clears throat> they ended up as early as 1926, sort of coining the term the right of return. Um, but this specifically meant demanding a right of return from the British to, to be able to come back to Palestine. Um, again, some of you who are familiar with the history of the mandate know that immigration regulations were quite strict coming into mandate territory um, and controlled by the British. <clears throat> These emigrants connected their arguments in support of citizenship with their understanding of Palestine, again, as an Arab nation. So as they were considering themselves as ethnically Arab, then they felt that by right, they should be able to return to um, Palestine to claim um, Palestinian citizenship. <clears throat> One other thing to, in, in talking about the mandate period, before I move on to talk a bit more about contemporary uh, legislation, is that the Arab nationalists focused upon a specific language under the mandate that was used also during the Ottoman Empire, um, specifically translating citizenship as jinsiya, so as, I guess, nationality, rather than citizenship in law as a legal relationship between a state and an individual. The British also published the citizenship law and its amendments, translating citizenship as jinsiya, which and again, some of you may disagree or have something more to say about this, but it's not, I would think Jinsia is something more like nationality. But again, that's, that's something we can discuss as well. <clears throat> and so this contributed to the kind of conflation of the two terms. So um, the British and the Arabs sort of using citizenship and nationality as if they meant the same thing. <clears throat> The main impact of mandate legislation uh, upon this changing terminology was that eventually citizenship began to be perceived as something different than nationality, um, in large part because emigrants in the diaspora were unable to come back um, by right as nationals. Um, citizenship, in a sense, by the 1930s, certainly by 1947, was a term that was very much linked to a relationship between an individual and the state, rather than a more ethnic, um, sort of ideological term, um, primordial term, I guess. <clears throat> so moving on a bit to um, the end of the Palestine Mandate, the UN Resolution 181 in 1947 
so before the creation of Israel, did refer to Palestinian citizens um, in some of its articles. Basically saying Palestinian citizens, if Palestine were to be divided, um, were to be able to keep their, their citizenship. Although citizenship in the UN resolution was mentioned quite ambiguously, particularly in terms of rights and freedoms um, that citizens actually had. Uh, we think of citizens, I guess, today in terms of these things, political rights, civil rights, social rights. Um, this idea was a bit more fluid and a bit more ambiguous prior to um, 1948. <clears throat> The 1952 Israeli nationality law then was not, and obviously continues not to be, a citizenship law. What this did was affirm the denaturalization of Arabs from their Palestinian citizenship as retroactive from the date of Israel's declaration of statehood. Um, so between 1948 and 1952, this Palestinian citizenship that had existed in law, international law, and also local law in Palestine, um, obviously disappeared, became something that no longer existed with um, the Israeli nationality law. So children born to Palestinians were declared stateless, um, unless those Palestinians later on were became the, the 48 Arabs. <clears throat> the Israeli Declaration of Independence then um, uses two competing ideas of Jewishness and citizenship in the democratic character of the state. But for Palestinians who are obviously non-Jewish, um, the character of the Israeli state as Jewish and a state of its citizens has led to structural and institutional inequality um, between the Jewish citizens and the Arab residents of Israel. <clears throat> In the absence of a Palestinian nation state since 1948, no longer could Palestinians be seen under international law as Palestinian Arab nationals. <clears throat> So this kind of ideological definition of nationality really came to nothing. <clears throat> um, just to sort of skip ahead in interest of time. Um, I think one of the key things then to, to get to in talking about contemporary events is that the Palestinian Arabs themselves, and to go back to this issue of terminology and language and constructing citizenship through language and discourse, is that even under various occupations, so Jordanian, Egyptian, Israeli, um, the Arabs did not lose this sense of nationality. And this became somewhat facilitated with the formation of the PLO and the Palestinian National Charter in 1968. So you have the charter um, expressing <clears throat> the idea that Palestinian identity passed by blood, um, so you sanguinis, and the aftermath of 1948 did not negate this identity, nor cause a loss um, in membership in a Palestinian community. So this idea that there was still um, institutionalized in the National Charter, this idea of Palestinian nationality, sort of subverted Israeli constructions of the citizen. But it had no binding internationally. And so this is where there is this beginning of a gap between the established, uh, legal, recognized, internationally affirmed practice of making citizens and then the unrecognized 
attempt of the PLO um, to grant nationals of Palestine a particular citizenship in the absence of a state. Um, The Charter also went on to say that anyone born um, after 1947 of a Palestinian father inside or outside Palestine was a Palestinian. Um, But then we get this tricky problem now um, as to whether this refers to a Palestinian nationality, what that will translate into if in the future there is a citizenship law. Um, The Charter did not really provide for a separate definition of Palestinian citizenship. Um, So the 1988 Declaration of Independence, Palestinian Declaration, Uh, which noted that during the mandate there was this recognized Palestinian Arab people, um, etc. Palestine had sovereign borders, um, and that the Palestinian National Council um, in the Declaration of Independence called for the establishment of a state of Palestine. It's within this unilateral declaration of statehood from 1988 that you see an interesting ideology and notion of nationality. The declaration emphasized that the state of Palestine is, um, quote, the state of Palestinians wherever they may be. So basically what the declaration says is that Palestinians inside or outside of um, historic Palestine still have this state to call their own and to define themselves as Palestinians through. Of course, this isn't what international law would recognize as a state, nor can it grant citizenship or nationality. So we have this evolving, very ideological notion of the Palestinian and Palestinian nationals. In 1995, the interim government, so the government created by Oslo, um, the Palestinian Authority, drafted a citizenship law, but didn't publicize it or pass it. Um, And citizenship could not have been regulated by the Palestinian Authority anyway, um, since it was operating under Israeli occupation. However, um, again, in a very ambiguous sense, um, the third draft Palestine constitution, a couple of years later, gave citizenship to any Palestinian resident of Palestine before 1948 by descent, um, and claimed that this passed indefinitely. Um, The Constitution also stated that former citizens, um, so British Mandate citizens, uh, and their descendants with the right of return had Palestinian nationality. But again, these terms aren't actually defined, whether in law or in practice, what nationality and citizenship mean. So it it meant very little um, being put into a draft Constitution. The basic law of the PA then, um, in 2003, is I think the last mention of Palestinians in the context of nationality, but again, it fails—it fails to define what the Palestinian, what Palestinian citizenship actually is, and whether Palestinians resident in the diaspora can claim the rights of citizenship. <clears throat> so, moving out of the historical realm. Um, just to wrap up and into sort of contemporary discussions of citizenship and acts of belonging. 
by citizens. Um, it should be noted that the statehood bid in 2012 for Palestine within 1967 borders does not grant citizenship rights or responsibilities explicitly to inhabitants of the Palestinian state. So this is only territories and borders which were recognized by the United Nations in 2012. In the case of an independent Palestinian state, the criteria for citizenship must be more than just superficially stated as it has been in these previous PA, PLO declarations. And it must be stated in a way that it would give Palestinian nationals, whether refugees or not, or whoever thinks of themselves as a Palestinian national, clear terms for membership in that state as a citizen and hence the important thing, difference between citizenship and nationality, citizens having access to benefits um, of statehood, um, to benefits of the state, having access or some say in the state's decisions through representation, etc. Um, there's several problems with this. Um, Obviously, the territorial fragmentation of Palestinians who can actually claim to be a national and then later on claim citizenship. Um, there's also an argument by Victor Catan, um, who says that all Palestinians have been denationalized following 1948 and remain without any sort of nationality. So I guess this sort of without papers that Claire was talking about, individuals without papers. <clears throat> And thus, who would provide them with any sort of nationality if they're not resident of a state of Palestine? Um, Asim Khalil uh, at Berzeit notes, or noted in, in an earlier paper, that once a Palestinian state comes into existence, this was before 2012, um, the relationship between Palestinian nationals and Palestinian citizens must be defined. Um, so both in language and in practice. And so the question maybe for discussion is, has this been defined? Has there been a, a definite relationship between nationals and citizens in the case of Palestine? In the historical narrative of the first two decades of the mandate, the Arabs' discourses, practices, actions of citizenship, language, conflated these two statuses, nationality and citizenship. Um, but what was clear was that both of them, historically, um, were part of these demands by the Arabs for a democratic representative parliament, an independent Palestinian nation, um, access to welfare benefits, all the things we would think of as rights of citizenship, duties of citizens. Um, and so I, we can talk, I guess, a bit about the Yuri Davis article, but I mean, the, the, um, <clears throat> this idea of citizenship, nationality, what these two terms actually mean today um, are something that hopefully we can discuss in the, the, um, the next half of the seminar as well. Um, how am I doing for time? You're fine. Okay. I'm Oh, we can allow you until five, that's fine. Okay, okay. Um, I guess that would be good for talking about the, the Davis article. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I'm just stating why you chose it on this kind of thing. I find it extremely, uh, extremely interesting, a very good pick. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wasn't really sure what Article 2 actually 
choose from, and it was only after I picked it that I did read the end bit, that, it do, that, that he does give a bit of a description of um, the creation of Palestinian citizenship under the mandate. Um, what I found interesting in the article um, were several things. I mean, I, I think the article was published in 1995. So it is... And in terms of what he was talking about with the case of Palestinian citizens in, in is or Palestinians in Israel, it, it's a bit outdated. Um, but he really does get this and begin to express this idea between passport um, identity and the right of residence, the right of abode, and tries to work out whether jinsia and muatana are are the right terms to use for one or the other. Um, and he does, the thing that I liked about the article, but which I think could have been carried on a bit further, um, <clears throat> was the discussion of um, nationality as belonging in a kind of ethnic sense to a community, um, and that being translated into jinsia, and then muatana being a legal link between the state and the citizen. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't print out the article, so I'm, I should have probably taken a bit more notes on it. Um, he also tries to, I, I think the article, in the book, that he, he's written a bit more about citizenship in the Arab world, but he also links the case of Jordan as well. Ah, okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the, the original reasons I chose the article was really because this was one of the few um, articles, at least in English, and I mean, I'm quite sorry that that was what I was sort of, <laughs> the only thing I could kind of theorize this through was something written in English. But one of the few things that I've seen specifically on the Arab world, on the Middle East, that deals with the language of belonging through these particular two Arabic terms. Um, particularly because related to my larger research and this paper, it's really during um, the 1920s and 1930s that you see a shift in terminology, so the replacement of jinsia with muatana um, <clears throat> to mean citizenship. The article, I think, also... Um, I mean, there's a lot more that can be said for it, but, it, but in one... one um, thing I think that it does sort of not, it doesn't really historicize these two terms and that's something that I'm sort of struggling with. The article's helped a bit with seeing the contemporary uses of citizenship and nationality. But as far as placing this in a historical context, specifically for the Middle East, um, I'm still a bit unsure of how really to, to do that. Um, Yeah. I, should we open to discussion, or because I, I think the article, yeah, would give maybe if we could talk a bit more about it in a broader. Shall I start? Yeah. I I found it a bit confusing because I cannot um, I, I couldn't 
take myself out of the connotations of the words you've used in Arabic. Like for me, jinsiya, it relates to the ethnic dimension. Yeah. Jins. Yeah. And then muwatana, which was equated at some point with citizenship, it relates to a nation. Yeah. The, the, the concept of a nation. You've mentioned qawmiya once, and mm. they're, they're, they're in Arabic, I found them. Um, bit uh, confusing because Qawmiya is also refers to not really ethnic but uh, also yeah. kind of nation. Yeah, kind of national. Yeah. Nationality. But then when there was a part when you've equated Muantana with citizenship, that was the part which I found a bit confusing because citizenship, as I understand it, it relates to the kind of a relation um, the human being, the citizen, has with an imagined state with uh, where he he has to perform certain kinds of duties mm. and he'll be uh, granted certain rights and right. there's a state which would be responsible for uh, for this interaction um, and this doesn't translate in arabic well when you say agency if it's yeah. agency it yeah. wouldn't give it wouldn't give the same connotation that there's certain uh, duties or, or rights uh, yeah. by this. And the other part which I found uh, a bit confusing was trying to historicize the term when you were trying to look like Palestinians, what they were, they were looking for. Mm -hmm. For me, Palestinians in the diaspora before 48, they were looking to what they were deprived from. They were using the terms which for them, they thought would grant them certain access to the state where they were dealing with the British mandate. So yeah. if that meant the right to return, they would use the term that would guarantee them the access to the land, which which uh, they were deprived from. Right. So we're not really thinking here in terms of what they really wanted as much as what, because this is how I, my experience, my personal experience, we seek what we need at that moment. We seek returning to the land, if mm. that means Jinsiya, if that means Muwatana. We don't really... Or refugee status. Or refugees. I've been a refugee. Yeah, later refugees. And then, you know, there's uh, another term, Aed, um, mm. came after the Oslo period. They mean, for me, they, they're all parts of my history, my personal history, but I... I Whatever grants me the right to this land, mm. I'm gonna take it. Mm. I can think critically about it, but when it's the only option to come back here, I, I, I become even if I don't like. Yeah, term, yeah. Uh, if it gives me certain rights to be here. Mm. So looking into the terms, it's it's important, but also it's important to look what what was going through at that, uh, what people were um, experiencing yeah. at that time. And last point about the constitution, you've mentioned mm. something about the constitution, the draft constitution, uh, mm -hmm. not really uh, not um, uh, clarifying what was, who was a, a Palestinian. Yeah. I thought that was clear. It, what wasn't clear, yeah. because they said, uh, if you were born to Palestinians, yeah, if, yeah. If, the Palis uh, if, if your father was, was pre uh, in Palestine, who lived in uh, Palestine pre 1948, then the, for generations to come, he wouldn't mm -hmm. be a Palestinian. It was clear who would be a Palestinian. What wasn't clear, what you can claim and expect by right. being a Palestinian, because that was something that the Palestinian PLO 
they they could not offer what they don't what they cannot offer. I mean, they were not they didn't have the legal power to offer this. Yeah, so yeah. They didn't state uh, what rights would come. But they were clear about. I think it was clear. I, I mean, at, they were at least honest. They about who was? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't take that part. That um, part of uh, from the Palestinians. Yeah. That the Palestinians who are living outside or who who don't at this moment necessarily know that they belong to Palestinian mm -hmm. uh, nationalities. They gave them the, the right to claim this citizenship or whatever nationality. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, to claim that they're Palestinians in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't uh, <laughs> deprive them of that. Yeah. No, I think perhaps I phrased it a bit wrong. Yeah. Usually in our seminars, we make several interventions and then you respond to them. Okay. Unless you prefer to do it individually. This I guess whatever we want to set a precedent for. How do you prefer to do it? Well, I guess if you're used to something, we can certainly have different. It depends it's on how much you have on your place. I mean, um, it's not a nationality vote. <laughs> 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 anyway, voices and people might be there. Yeah, yeah. Just because of time. <laughs> Go ahead, anybody. Okay. Well, uh, well then, if I, uh, I have, sorry, I'd, I'd, I have a question on your, um, on your paper and as well on your reading on, on, on Davy's paper. Mm. Um, first of all, I got like different types of questions. Some of them are tiny question clarification, and some are, are more, um, are more putting more core question. Uh, you mentioned the British mandate sort of setting up a, but you say like into brackets something like that, local citizenship. And I would like yeah. to explain on what you mean because I, I, I do not quite grasp at that time yeah. what it would mean. Then I have a, this core question, obviously, because I'm still like focusing on this arts of citizenship, and I find it extremely interesting. Basically, what I found fascinating in your work is that, I mean, you're very much in the street work. Um, what we all sense and know is that basically citizenship is is not static, it's evolving. Mm. And what we look at is what the different factors that actually effectively manage to have an influence on this definition. Yeah. And we were talking about before about I was very interested in what you said about the, the immigrants and that what you mentioned as well. Basically you claim what you need and that's what we're right in the middle of our topic. People don't care about what's in paper and yeah. they claiming whether it's illegal or not, whether they think it can be granted or not. But then what interested me in this term of how do you relate, and here I'm being a bit theoretical, but that's what we wanted. How do you relate this acts of citizenship that actually predate the theorization of citizenship? Mm. And I find it extremely interesting in the uh, discipline of history to actually apply this, because if we, once again, maybe next time we could do that, or we can ask Professor Enzino uh, Davies to do that, citizenship studies as a field of academic studies is fairly new. Yeah. So you sort of seem to say that maybe there are acts of citizenship that predate not only the sort of international theorization of it, but as well the academic theorization of it. So I want you yeah. to have your thought about it. Then. I tend to, you said uh, that the British mandate heritage was conflating the two terms of Jinsi and Muatana. And here mm. I have two questions. 
um, well, maybe just one. I guess that the way it was differentiated was because of the international law framework, mm. whereby basically, especially after the UN, then the UN resolution, each person, and you have the Article 15, each person is meant to be bound to a state. That's what we all think of, and that's what we're here to sort of unpack this. So I got this is how it got differentiated. Mm. My question was, and here I come very much to what I found so interested in Uri Davis, and that actually you did not mention, is that Uri Davis seems to think that conflating things serve the power that is actually doing it. Yeah, yeah. So my question is, in the case of the British, conflating meaning what? The, the, the conflating the different terms. Mm. Jinsia, Muatana, everybody seems to be citizens, but everybody is sort of different grey colour citizen. So the ambiguity. Yes, exactly. Mm. So my question is, in the archive, did you find anything that actually mm. meant that either the British find an interest in conflating the thing, or was it just like, because the term were not developed enough? That's yeah. my question. Okay. And then I'd like... Sorry, if I speak too much, you can, uh, you can well, say I should have. We can have another round to, to because you're fo you're asking her to focus on a number of issues. Yeah, um, I just I just probably finish on on this very thing that I already mentioned. So because I just uh, sort of threw something about Davis. Um, I don't think Davis, and that's what I find so interesting. I don't think Davis is meaning Jinsia in terms of ethnic. No, he's not. Yeah. What is extremely interesting in his approach is that basically it distinguishes what I call citizenship on paper, basically citizenship as a as a, what do you call passport passport citizenship. citizenship with coming with the right of vote. We're, we're yeah. Okay. Meaning that you can't be. Yeah. And I disagree with your reading because I think. It's extremely interesting to think of Jinsia like that. Um, mm. In terms of the historical contextualization, Jinsia as nationalities comes straight from Printemps des Nationalités, 1848, uh, yeah. Central Europe, yeah. uh, where all like Gellner, Anderson, uh, how we built like a nation and nationality in, well, in plural. Um, but here, like Davis takes a completely different thing, understanding, sorry, that actually uh, I sort of noticed in the case of Kuwait, whereby Jinsia is not much, not that, so much that ethnic bound, that is sort of practical, extremely down towards practical understanding of your Jinsia is mammoth, is tangible, is your paper, is what enables you to travel. Mm. Yes and no. It means that it means you basically almost your passport. No, but you're also deprived from certain rights to vote. Bidun in Kuwait. No, I'm not talking mm. about Bidun. I'm talking about fairly well. People would like to got Jinsia, but what they mean by Jinsia doesn't mean to go to vote. Mm. You mean having this passport, especially for Bidun. Meaning basically crossing and having something in hand that will be your identification. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's what I thought was most interesting and 
Well, then Davis uses it as what I would like to call, and I find, I mean, I, I was really grateful for you to pick that, acts of non-citizenship. Yeah. I've different acts of citizenship whereby people would be claiming a price. And here you have a case where a state actually, not well, far from what you call public scrutiny, actually take up this case of right and this right altogether and sort of blurring the attention of the international uh, community or even their own citizen by pretending that citizen is all one and same color. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah going back I to this conflation. I want to have your thoughts of this extremely interesting uh, acts of non-citizenship, taking back something that actually was the right mm -hmm. way around, whereby people claim something. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Shall I then? Okay. I just wanted to think about two more terms that might be a little bit earlier than the ones you introduced, but that come from the British. And the, but I think operated nonetheless during the mandate, which mm. come from the Balfour Declaration, which is native inhabitants and Jewish homeland. And I think those terms mm. also operated. I mean, I think, yeah. I, I'm sure yeah. that you've written a thesis that. Uh, a long thesis that there is my feeling that, that we sort of we were a bit abrupt about the creation of, of notions of citizenship and nationality during this very complicated period of the mandate. But I would introduce mm -hmm. those two terms, and then I would try to think a little bit about uh, you know, other kinds of affiliations and identities. I mean, who who performed these acts of citizenship? Yeah. The boycotts, the yeah. what groups of Palestinians, who, yeah. uh, who were excluded because local identities, religious affiliations, and... Or social uh, yeah, status, yeah. intellectual yeah. groups, yeah. I wouldn't want to uh, sort of assume that... Uh, it was a mass kind of... citizenship was created whole and for everybody. Correct. And, and I think that's another kind of threat. So it's yeah. one of the terms that come from the colonial discourse that we haven't introduced yet. But I think are, are operating okay. without the, uh, mm. uh, operating very powerful and powerfully. And the other is on the Palestinian side uh, who, who performs acts yeah. of citizenship. Yeah. And who doesn't? Who's excluded from those right. acts or doesn't? That's good. I like the historical bit of that. Um, I have quite a lot to. Yeah. Maybe we should break it and break it into two cycles. Yeah. Okay. 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 And again, I mean, in the next round, if I'm saying something that still could be said better, please say so. As far as the first questions, this idea of um, nationality being used but not translating into responsibilities, um, duties, etc. What I tried to do was historicize the use of the terms, but not not necessarily get so theoretical about them, but just to see what terms were historically actually used. So for the diaspora, before 48, the emigrants, um, I do understand that they're, they're using the terminology and the discourses and the demands that are pertinent to them at the time. Um, but the diaspora, 
and maybe this relates a bit to, to what you've said, Penny, as well. The use of the term ginsea for citizenship um, was used by the diaspora, but so was the word for native of Palestine, um, probably used just as much by the Arabs, um, not necessarily by the British, um, but certainly by the Arabs in Arabic, in their demands, in newspapers. Um, there was a particular lobbyist group formed in the 1920s by people in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, uh, Ramallah, areas where a lot of um, Palestinian Arabs left to go abroad, to go elsewhere. Um, and this lobbyist group was, um, it was called the Defense of Arab Emigrant Citizenship Rights. Um, and it did use the term jinsia um, for citizenship, for citizenship rights. And that, I think, is what sort of spurred the diaspora to use that same term in their correspondence, because some of the big nationalist groups back in Palestine were using it. Um, <clears throat> But again, and I think as Clara said too, there is this evolving terminology of citizenship and certain words used for certain reasons and at certain times. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more to be said about that, I think. Um, the 1998 um, constitution and the claim to what a Palestinian is, um, how they become Palestinian. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Maybe I didn't put it right in the paper. But th that was what I was trying to say, is that that's pretty much what that declaration does give. But it doesn't really set a tone for if in the future you have to have a quite um, detailed um, legal way of defining citizenship for a state of Palestine that would be accepted by the UN internationally. Um, so my question then for bringing in this earlier legislation in the 1990s, some of it just draft and or not passed, is where then will that definition of citizenship actually come from when the time comes to create a proper citizenship law? Um, because if we ha we're having these unilateral declarations of statehood in uh, 1988 by Arafat, um, and then the, the UN bid for statehood a couple of years ago, I mean, if there's a state that there's even though there's still the occupation, there, there should still, I mean, someone should have some sense of what a citizenship law for that state would entail, um, which is one of the first things that should be passed um, in an independent state. There should be a citizenship law stating what a citizen is. Um, but none of this earlier PA, PLO legislation seemed to set the tone for, for what that would entail aside from Palestinians um, receive the nationality from, thank you, um, from being born here or ancestry, etc. Um, so I was trying to kind of ask where do we get the kind of hard facts about what the citizen would actually be. Um, <clears throat> uh, Claire's question. Yeah, this idea of acts of citizenship predating theories of citizenship and academic kind of theorization of citizenship is really interesting. Um, and I mean, for the case of Palestine and Syria, you could go back to the 1860s um, when you have writers beginning to popularize the term Watan and sort of patriots, um, 
and then in the 1860s, the Ottoman nationality or citizenship laws passed. Um, and so there are, from the mid-19th century, late 19th century, by a very small minority, and probably this goes to what you were saying later about who is performing acts of citizenship. I mean, historically, until modern times, it's been kind of the intellectuals, the educated people, um, uh, people who could have access to printing press, to newspapers, people who were involved in government or civil servants. Um, and from the 1860s, 1870s in greater Syria, um, it was certainly kind of intellectual circles that began to talk about what patriotism and then what citizenship actually would be, what the homeland was in relation to the individuals living there. Um, <clears throat> Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. How are you talking here about sort of nation building? And like it rings a bell. It really feels like I understand what you're saying, basically. How are you talking about citizenship in terms of acts? You know, is it articulating your own rights and these kind of things? Or I think that's probably not until later because. Even though you have the Ottoman citizenship law giving a kind of legislative meaning for citizenship, I mean, there's not really, and some people beginning to talk about citizenship, Boutros al-Bastani and um, Tatawi and other um, Arab thinkers, they weren't all kind of in support of democratic citizenship. They didn't always think that the people should be granted the right to elect representatives, to be able to act out citizenship rights in that sense. But I think acts of citizenship going along after the turn of the century, I mean, you have civic organizations, civil society structures being built in the Ottoman Empire and then later on, kind of worldwide as well. Um, it's kind of internationalism around the time of the First World War and afterwards, where people are agitating governments and administrations for different rights. So if we're thinking of acts of citizenship as sort of confronting governments demanding certain things, I mean, I think we can see that going back to revolutions in the early 20th century, um, the Ottoman context, a bit in Iran, um, certainly in places in Latin America, the Russian Revolution, um, all of this which were kind of, I guess, built on French revolutionary ideals, in a sense. Um, to quickly go to this, um, I think Claire's question of was the term, I think you're talking about Jinsiya in the archives and things, and the conflation of, of these two things. Um, I think I said in the paper that the 1925 citizenship law was called, in Arabic, the nationality law. So, well, it was translated as jinsiya. In the British legislation in the archives, so in the actual British documents in English, uh, until maybe like the month before the law was passed, it was called a nationality law. Um, it wasn't called a citizenship law until a month or two before the law was passed. And if you go through the, the, the archives, the, the word nationality was scratched out in every single kind of amendment and draft and replaced, written above, with citizenship. Um, and I think this had a lot to do with some of the legal authorities in England at the time. 
also theorizing what this difference was between the two, but also how did the League of Nations separate the two, national and citizen. And so when we talk about a local nationality in Palestine that the British um, law put into place, this is something, so this local Palestinian citizenship, the British had to be very careful for the case of Palestine specifically because it was meant to be a Jewish homeland, it was meant to eventually become independent, that whatever citizenship or nationality that the population had would be completely separate from British imperial nationality or British subjecthood. So it was quite separate from, say, in Egypt earlier on, um, they're kind of British protectorate, British protected persons. Um, in India, it was slightly different as well. In other British colonies, British protectorates, Palestine had to be quite different because the population had to have an identity that could not be associated with British nationality, um, British subjecthood. Um, and sort of related to that, the British didn't create the citizenship law kind of out of nowhere. It was um, the Treaty of Lausanne uh, and the Treaty of Sevres after, after the First World War that put into place international regulations for transferring um, territory after the war to the British, to the French, to others, and what to do with the populations. Um, and for the case of Palestine, their British sort of mistranslated in the citizenship law from the original French in the, the Treaty of Lausanne, um, <clears throat> which I think stated something about it, um, natives, indigenous people um, were to be granted the nationality of, uh, of the new occupying power, so Britain or France. Um, the British didn't translate that as indigenous people, but just inhabitants, which meant that Palestinians Jews who, to do yeah, it had to do a lot with, with the Jews because they weren't indigenous, they were inhabitants. And this also later meant, whether it was intentional or not, that Palestinians who moved outside of Palestine, since they were indigenous, their parents were Palestinian, but because being indigenous didn't grant the absolute right to citizenship, rather it was residence. Um, they often weren't given citizenship. Um, What's interesting about this is that the Jews were indigenous, but the Zionists were not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were native Jews there. Yeah, I mean the Zionist organization had quite a lot, quite a big hand in drafting the citizenship or approving drafts, commenting on drafts of the Palestine law, um, and later the Israeli citizenship law, I think, was influenced by a lot of what the Zionist organization had wanted for, prior to that, for the Palestinian law. Um, so yeah, it, it, and that also the Arabs, when talking about using the term jinsiya, um, I think also using the term natives was something that they used very much in a political way to set themselves apart from the immigrants coming in. Um, this demand for all of the natives to have Palestinian citizenship, to have some sort of equal rights um, with the incoming um, settlers. <clears throat> um, and just, just a fine, final um, question about who performed the acts of citizenship on the Palestinian side and who doesn't. 
I guess as a historian, it's you know it's quite hard to generalize and saying, well, everyone performed citizenship. It was this mass movement of demands against the British. Um, everyone was boycotting. Everyone was striking. But I don't think it's until 1936, the the Palestinian rebellion, that there is this kind of grassroots move to demand certain things. Um, and it's really in the 30s that you have the rise of like labor movements, um, some sort of student activism. There is a, some links between Palestinian um, national leaders and the international communist movement. But before that, those performing acts of citizenship, if we're talking about demanding rights and responsibilities, um, trying to hold the mandate accountable for the population, it's this kind of small middle class, I suppose, elite group initially that were the driving force behind this sort of thing. But, I mean, they did still popularize or try to get everyone to boycott elections. Um, and that was successful a couple of times. Um, but still, the, this actual idea of what a citizen was, I don't think was something quite concrete in the minds of the majority of the population until a bit later on, despite there being a citizenship law. I don't think everyone would have known what, you know, what the mandate actually meant by that, or didn't mean, I guess. Uh, Lauren, do you think if you are the moderator, so... I'm the moderator? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, please, you first. <laughs> That's what he meant. Palestinians today, if, they, if we have to, to take the decision uh, and uh, pass a law in Arabic, do you think we'll name it Qanun al-Jinsiya or Qanun al-Muatana? Bearing in mind, mm. not only diaspora, not only Palestinians in 48, mm. But for some reason, personally, I know I'll be giving an exact example. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalemites. Yeah. I'll give an example. After '67, any any parents in Jerusalem, a mother would have given birth uh, to her child in West Jerusalem, uh, according to international law. This is Israel. Hmm. Uh, then this, let's say, girl will hold a Jerusalem ID with a Jordanian passport if she wishes, or a travel document that is Jerusalem uh, Israeli, let's say, Palestine. And when filling any of the visa applications or so, on nationality, she will put Palestinian. She can't put Palestinian. She will put Palestinian because that's how we see ourselves. Ah, this is a, a Nationality and citizenship is, is a question of identity, mm -hmm. more than a question of what you, what rights you get or what acts you can perform. Or, and this is very personal. I was born in Jerusalem, I hold a Jordanian uh, passport, and whenever I feel nationality, I feel Palestinian. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's the official uh, of the, the clerk's problems, uh, problem to to comprehend this. Yeah. So today, as Palestinians, shall we name it nationality or citizenship 
or what? But you bring in another... It's also the, the question of power, because you were referring to the state and the state in uh, 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 2012, what happened, mm. and, and it's very dangerous there because there they approved of a state that cannot grant certain yeah. rights to what, whoever citizens it's it's dangerous to to I mean to to think in the terms of what the state was uh, is going or is going to be able yeah. to give or not because what we want is different it, yeah. it's something really different than what they would yeah. be able to offer us. This dilemma of having to choose between all, all these two uh, uh, tourism in terminology. Yeah. Watan or state? Now we're talking Watan or Latoya? I don't... I, fatherhood or... Uh, or sorry, fatherland or motherland. Yeah, yeah. Nationality or citizenship. Uh, and it goes on. It does, and, and you bring into the, the other point of... This idea of terminology, and if you have a Jordanian passport, I'm the yeah, yeah. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. To, uh, I know it's very tempting to respond. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I think, from your point of view, the temptation to, I mean, the, the need to conceptualize, always uh, is. Um, confronted with the problem of Palestinian exceptionalism. Mm. We look at concrete cases, particular uh, evolution of uh, problems of identity in Palestine. But actually we should resist this because there's nothing exceptional about Palestine. I mean, there's concreteness about the Palestinian mm. case, but a lot of these issues we okay, see in a huge number of countries, especially after the segmentation of the Great War and the reconstruction of ethnicity and nationality on the basis of territorial divisions. Mm. The, what I wanted to ask you about, well, I want first to make a joke and, and then ask you a question. <laughs> with the question of equating citizenship with uh, passports, uh, I think for the majority of Arabs, um, and this is not a joke, it's a reality. <laughs> Passport is it's very significant not because it uh, conveys rights and duties, but because it allows people to leave their country. The secret document allows them to get out of the country. And then yeah. they want to come back, of course. But <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an exit term, basically. <laughs> Uh, and it meant, and we didn't have. Yeah, there are different degrees of power. It didn't say you find a place to accept you yeah. if you want to exit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Gulf is a credit card. This is why it's happening. Right, yeah. This is why it's happening. Yeah, both in person. I'd like to ask you a question about. Uh, you said when the Palestinians were debating what kind of nationality they will adopt, there was a major debate and dispute and opposition because they were granting, they were raising the issue of extraterritorialism. In other words, the Palestinian, the new Palestinian Authority were, had to deal with the issue of the disbursement of the Palestinians and therefore mm. citizenship had the problem of uh, dealing with a large number of people who are outside the country. So the extraterritorial issue was critical in the recognition or, not, or lack of recognition of this new nationality. I think 
the issue here is not extraterritorialism, but the, uh, the legitimacy of that citizenship in the lack of sovereignty. In other words, it's a lack of sovereignty, not mm -hmm. extraterritorialism, that was the issue. Why? Because a huge number of countries, increasingly so, grant citizenship to people who not only were not born in the country, but have, have never been in that country. Yeah. I mean, we know today that the Irish, the Italians, the Germans, the Russians, the Poles most recently, mm -hmm. give citizenship to people who are two or three generations yeah. removed. So the question is here is, it's the lack of, of sovereignty and, or, or the quasi-sovereign status of the post-Oslo period mm. that created this issue. And in order to solve it, we have to look at countries which gave citizenship before and after without sovereignty. sovereignty yeah. And the, the most immediate uh, uh, issue is, is colonial countries. I mean, the people were not invested with sovereignty, and yet they acquired citizenship in colonial conditions, extremely power, yeah. powerful uh, aspects of it. Yeah. But I think this extraterritorialism and sovereignty are actually the interesting two dimensions of the controversy about Palestinians having citizenship. Mm. Yeah. But I was thinking of Algeria, for instance, Algerians who claimed uh, French citizenship. Algerians is one, one of these. Yeah. Because you mean Algerians? Yeah. Algerians who claimed citizenship in France after the liberation. Ah, for the Cologne? For, for instance. Yeah, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, this what you were thinking about. Mm. Uh, if not, what you were thinking about. I wasn't thinking of anything. I was uh, thinking of the, of the problem yeah. as a category. Okay. And the fact that in many uh, historical cases, you, you do have a sovereign power giving extraterritorial citizenship, but not reverse. A country without sovereignty granting... I mean, this is the issue. Is What kind of citizenship can be created by an entity or body that does not have it? Yeah. The, the UN does not have sovereignty, but it does give citizenship. It, give, it does give uh, travel documents. It gives, if you want, a, a global kind of citizenship to, to its uh, staff. But they are recognized documents. And they are recognized. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 Donetsk, for example, there is this problem of people uh, in, in several places in the former Soviet Union. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. People have the yeah, of, yeah, of passports that are not recognized. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, that's a good comparison. My, my question was is like, I think I read in Uri Davis and your lecture something of urgency to define what kind of citizenship that we want to deal in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think the Israelis either postpone it or solve it. Uh, the, the Israelis did it. They have lots of people all over the world. They have the right to be Israelis anytime they want. They are Jewish. Or they stay in Israel for a period of time. But they, they have that law. So why why you see like this urgency to define mm. what kind of citizenship we, we need to deal with? Because this is really messy. And I think what they already mm. is article is very obvious. It shows a lot of... <coughs> examples that they are more yeah. complicated than each other and I think what I like with that with that, that article is is like citizenship 
is an ideological apparatus that exempts nationality from their rights. Or yeah. It's like something happening, like the Jordanians they are doing something, the Ottomans they are doing something, the British they are doing something for the Palestinian nationals. So it's the citizenship was not really a privilege, it was a kind of ideological apparatus that destroys something inside yeah. the community. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm not sure I understood that last point. Like the, the, the citizenship law or these uh, control things, the organization of people in citizenship law. It was really. It looks like from Ottoman time and on, it was used as an apparatus to exempt people from the rights. Yes. From their rights. From their rights or some okay. of their rights. Or to be, it's like it was used for interests, something. It was not for the people themselves, actually. Palestinians. Mm. But they suffered from the citizenship law. And but but you raised also the issue of ambiguity. Yeah, of course. I mean, you're, you're asking why does, do you have to be what precise about it? Yeah. Yeah. What, what's That's the right. function? What's the meaning of being precise? Why to be precise? Yeah. Yeah. Why you need to define it in, in a very and why it is urgent and what is it, why it is precise? Just to come back to exactly what you said and, and what you disagree with, I think Georgian case is very much of a peculiar one. And here, I, I totally agree with uh, your idea of uh, not putting too much emphasis on the Palestinian well, exceptionalism, especially what you said. You can find it like well just take Scottish, you know, this the Dawla versus identity doesn't matter. But anyway, but here, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a very precise case where Jordan suddenly denaturalized. And this is not done that often. I wouldn't say this is the unique example, because you can see, like, the Gulf country, they're kind of good putting aside part of their inhabitants and, and um, not giving nationality, but in that very case... No, no. In, in the Gulf, they did not denationalize them. They did not give it to them. Yeah, they well, they, they played on an ambiguity, but... The, yeah, uh, you're right. The Bidou did not have citizenship, and then they became Bidou. They did not acquire citizenship in the first place. Yeah, no, you're right. In the case right. of Jordan, 1988, what happened is that people were, as you said, were denaturalized. They, their citizenship was... Yeah, I'm, I'm um, yeah. I take back this. So this is a very special case in terms of how a state defines citizenship towards a citizen. Because mm -hmm. usually, you know, he wants them to be um, fairly well defined so they can control entry, exit, who's in, who's out, especially from the policy, but it's not quite linked to citizenship that actually is, is stripping people from rights. I would sort of tend to qualify what you said. Which is more dangerous, mm -hmm. no? You know, also to exempt people from their poverty. But access, access to the passport, but you are not part of the. You might consider the question of the vote. For instance, I mean, because there is, there are the voting in in the PA elections based on residency and various other things, and there is this campaign to register all refugees in order to be able to vote for the PNC, and those are two different kinds of. Uh, a definition of, of a very fundamental right of, a, of either a citizen or a national. Yeah. Gosh, there, there's a lot. I, <laughs> I guess this Jordanian issue is quite interesting as well. But to talk about 
Your case, Caroline. What do you define yourself it's as? Not, it's, it's not my case, but sorry, sorry. To not yours, but what you've yeah. said. No, one, 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 one thing. Maybe I'm still to say this. Uh, the Bedouin in Kuwait and statelessness and, and, and several parts of what is what has been happening here for the past 20 years, without very much publicity on the numbers, we are having a new uh, status of Bedouin. Yeah. People with Jerusalem used to have Jerusalem. Yeah. So it's not a, a, a case. Yeah. No. yeah. Especially that Palestinians don't give neither a passport nor a, an identity card. Right. They can't. Yeah. yeah. Oh. But then, do these people still have Jordanian if they yeah. had it to begin with? They're Jordanian. Well, if Jordan is not here, I remove the Jordanians the same day. Uh, they can't go to it, Jordan oh, without the ID. You become the yeah, you yeah. Become, you become legally non-existent. Yeah. In, in terms of state, uh, statehood, you become but non-existent. If I yeah. just precise what I want you to say, because you really um, caught me uh, red-handing, misphrasing what, what I was willing to say. The Bedouin were actually granted rights. And they were deprived rights. They were not granted formal citizenship, but then they were deprived mm -hmm. rights. Okay, so there is some similarity. There is some similarity. Yeah. They were allowed to uh, uh, right to education, right to health, right to work, yeah. and suddenly they were stripped all that. Of course, I mean all of these cases uh, have very uh, wider uh, implications. The stripping of citizenship by Jordan was an act that the Palestinians themselves thought. They thought of it as a prelude yeah. to create a political vacuum to compel the international community and the state of Israel to devolve and grant uh, independence or autonomy. So it was, it was not uh, where the state intervened and removed citizenship because wanted to get rid of the population. It's where the population wanted to get rid of the state. Mm. I mean, I'm exactly. <laughs> yeah, but then that's so interesting because where did we reach that point where they could have stopped because they were still con Jordan was still continuing not to renew passport of Palestinians. They, they, so, they still continue to give yeah, passport. Yeah, so where was that the point where they could the have? The passport have is not the proof of citizenship. Yeah. yeah. So this is where. Yeah. Yeah. Passport. passport here is no longer a proof of citizenship. Uh -huh. I think this is the, the, the case of the Jordan uh, thing. It's very similar also to the, uh, 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 the, the British attempt to include uh, in, the term, in their uh, citizenship uh, law uh, in 1925 and mm -hmm. even earlier to be inclusive of non-indigenous uh, non of the Jewish population within the definition of the citizenship law. And they departed from the nationality definition. You're doing that. And that's what mm -hmm. the reason why the Palestinian uh, population, the natives, were trying to defy that definition of citizenship because it had the consequences on the definition of nationality. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And in the Jordanian case, this is the same was happening again. The issue of citizenship might have equaled the issue of nationalism within the nation state of Jordan, which means the population of Palestinians, which is almost two-thirds of the population in Jordan, will become equally national in there. And then the identity of the sovereign will change. And here it's a very, it's a very important point that the identity, the identity itself uh, of the sovereign is very important. 
And when people yeah. are negotiating with our, as individuals or persons in the, or groups, negotiating those laws in practices or in texts and producing texts or narrative, they are negotiating the identity of the sovereign. So they can decide to defy or they can decide to be inclusive. And the sovereign also decide to exclude and include. And I think in Jordan it was very, uh, very clear it was the Palestinians were seeking it uh, politically. Uh, they wanted that national definition, even mm -hmm. if it had a consequence of losing certain rights and duties and responsibilities and even uh, certain privileges. Mm. But they also the sovereign in Jordan wanted that at the same time. They, it, was, it became dangerous during that first intifada. That's why they didn't call it faculty, they call it fucking It became dangerous during the first intifada. When the narrative of the Palestinians I don't even know what to say now. Um, I don't know, I guess maybe one of the major issues then here is I mean, what you were saying about why the need to be precise about citizenship and this urgency to define it is maybe because the problem of statelessness is then the only other option when you're not defining citizenship. And then the problem of statelessness is something much bigger than what sort of the national polity can handle. It's something that becomes an issue for, I guess, the, the United Nations um, and internationally, which... Again, go, going back to on identity documents, if you're writing your nationality Palestinian, then by definition, if that's what you're writing, you're stateless. I suppose, and that really, in international terms, is something that would pose a rather large problem. Um, Why? Why a large, a large problem? I think because because every individual should be going to a should have a state at a least. State right, that that's a passport. In 20th century terms, I think this is the way... A tax department to, to submit papers? Mm. What? It just, since... I mean, it seems like since 1918, this is the only way that the big um, sort of players can sort of conceptualize international affairs that every person must have a state to belong to, um, which, I mean, it, that's not saying that I would have a, an agreement with that or not, but it seems like internationally this is always a quite important and pressing issue, that if someone is stateless, this this is something that the League of, or the, yeah, the League of Nations, the UN would have to take up or other international bodies would have to take up, um, simply because of the way politics seems to work. That, I don't agree with yeah, I mean, it's, it's in like a globalized world now. It doesn't make sense at all. I think what's the rationale behind it, first of all, this idea of statelessness is the whole, once again, you have to historicize it. Mm. The new thing has been maybe five years now that uh, UNHCR is talking about statelessness, fighting statelessness. Now you know we know that there are 12 million people around, but we don't really. What we yeah. hear about 
in terms of statelessness is when this kind of people, if you're in Nepalese and you don't hold a passport and you have a right to education, we don't care, but if you're in Nepalese and you want to travel to Heathrow Airport and you don't have the passport, that's where it's taught to care. So mm. Citizenship has to do with the international system where yeah. it does regulate migration and exit exit and entry. If you stay in the Madri way, mm. in a village here, without your passport, without kind of well, you can stay wherever well. you you are Palestinian <laughs> and you can claim it to wherever you want. But if you start trying to go in another state that is internationally defined with a border internationally mm. recognized, then that's where you actually feels like suddenly you will have to be somebody that is sanctioned by a, a by a sovereign, I suppose. Yeah. Going back okay. to yeah. where Palestinians uh, many injustices we will inflict on people because of their identity and citizenship passport. Like we destroyed communities with the borders and the passport. Who said demons should be in them? Who should who says like Palestinians are not moving to Jordan or Jordan is to Palestine? I think the citizenship destroyed the movement. It did not help the movement actually. Mm -hmm. Mm. But then do we talk about nation-state or do we talk about citizenship? Um, yeah, there's an example, like if we take China and Taiwan and Hong Kong. China and, uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong are China. And they are two, three different sets of uh, citizenship definitions, yeah. nation definitions and accesses and travel restrictions. People are excluded and uh, uh, included and excluded within certain acts of citizenship by by the either the larger community or by the mother state of China, who of the Hong Kong uh, subjects can access mainland China and who cannot. Yeah. It's dependent. Who of the Taiwan can access China and cannot is dependent. And on the other hand, who of the Chinese. Hong Kong or Taiwan, Taiwan people can access the rest of the world, which mean Europe and the West mainly. It's a very complex situation that if we talk about complexity, it's much more complex than our, our, our situation here. In Palestinian. In terms of my fear is that we're already in the first session trapped in looking at citizenship. Uh, under the assumption that it was invented in the West and adopted in other cultures. Mm. Uh, answering the question or, or mm. why is it a bigger problem and uh, referring the answer to international yeah. and borders and we're already trapped. But then what other way to theorize it that how do we imagine Palestinian the sort of notion of identity passport was all inputs by the British colonial power. So yes, there is yeah. a history whereby, I mean, Professor Insin is actually looking at this. Can we have sort of different understanding? But there yeah. is sort of historical truth whereby there has been an imposition 
of some kind of notion that actually do not fit. And I really like your uh, your example of Hong Kong because basically what we said that every single individual should have a sort of state affiliation is what we were joking about is completely ideal because if we're scratching every kind of people mm. is exactly what doesn't happen everywhere. Like the British citizenship is extremely complicated as was in the Eurydice case. Yeah. It's an extraordinary mess and think well thinking while you were talking, I think it would be so interesting to have a look at how ad hoc the citizenship and nationality that were set up by the British was because there is no two single law that was the same in, from Gibraltar to Kuwait, let alone India or wherever it's yeah. completely no I mean when we think of the principle it's nowhere there is two unique situations. So it's a bit of the exceptionalism everywhere. Mm. We have one about in 20 minutes. Is this okay for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to stay until six months. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this to be just between uh, uh, clear and myself, but uh, yes, there is an imposition because of historical, of, of history, how it happened. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think on this table we, we wanted to dig uh, uh, deeper and see what what was the uh, the hidden uh, drive for all this. This is uh, relatively very recent, 200 years, 150 uh, years ago. This is recent. Uh, the 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 example of East uh, Asia and Jordan. For some reason, I see them very similar. And if we uh, if we look at the uh, mode of production as a determinant of who has which rights, mm. is it a question of economy rather than international law, if you want? But what mm. Hannah said at the beginning is that in our in, in our case over the last hundred years. Uh, I chose my identity according to the best of my knowledge at that point. This is amazing. It's a bit tactical. Like oh, okay. This is very. This is very true. Mm. But but citizenship is not mm. is not a, 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 a function of one's conscious identity. It's a decision taken by someone other than me to give me other things. So this state or or uh, international body or whoever or maybe a co the collectiveness of the people. Decide on what, on what, on which basis. Yeah. It's not necessarily only ethnic uh, basis, neither borders or indigenousity or, or uh, land. Uh, my question is how, how much economics, economics has to do with it. Uh, mm. and, and I pay taxes where? Yeah, and the Bidun in Kuwait also may shed a light because Bidun, they're also, I think, they're deprived from certain resources of that the Kuwaitis who hold the Kuwaiti. But they're part of the economy. That, but they're deprived from certain uh, claims, privileges to certain resources that the uh, Kuwaitis have. Uh, have. Not certain, all of them. No? Not certain. I said not certain, all of them, until recently. Mm. 
Are you talking to us or to yourself? <laughs> no, no, to her. <laughs> because we didn't get the last, yeah, the last thing I knew was Nazihaj. <laughs> I left there in 1990, so before then, uh, they were, uh, ah, yeah, I, have, I wasn't quit, you so. Were we, no, no, we were not. We were less than We were less than Bidu. We were holding the. We have to remember that the people are not the lowest. They're grades of citizenship, Ash. They're grades of citizenship. Grades of being In the official Kuwaiti discourse, you were waiting for the great Palestinian citizenship to come. Well, they are more deprived because they are potential citizens. You were, yeah, because you were not part of the system. Yeah. They were part of the system, but deprived of its privilege. Yes, and mm. that's why it's, it's a different kind of deprivation. Well, yeah, it's hard they had hopes and expectation that Palestinians never were given because from the beginning they were just like... No, we were no, we were waiting for Palestine. I mean, we were very interesting because when your claims were on a different stage, you know what I mean? When we're talking about... When we're talking about who holds which claim, the Palestinians were having claims on a, on a future Palestinian state, whereby the Bedouin had claims on the Kuwaiti state, mm. which made your situation, your grace of statelessness, completely different. In yeah, Arabic, we, we say, they least in general. It's like <laughs> staking your claims on something in the, uh, in the other <laughs> way. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, because they, I mean, what, what, the, what uh, was it clear what the Bidun has to do so he would be accepted as a Kuwaiti? I mean, I don't know. Is it something you're waiting to happen, to do? When, when would you be recognized as a Kuwaiti? Or you'd Never. stay Bidun? Never. 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 Also, when you use the word, the, you use the word in French, think of that. That's Quit, like now you go to schools until 18. After that, you disappear from the radar of the state. When they finish school, they disappear. Yeah, they don't go to school anymore. Well, they're, they're coming back to school, but since 2004, but they were not allowed to school anymore. So they were. You're talking about Kuwait, sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You're talking about Bidun in Kuwait. Yeah. No, Bidun have been deprived of basic rights of education. They were not taking it. Until the 18, he says yes. Until nope. 18, it's fine. Nope. No? Nope. So they are deprived of public education. They could go to private education, but they had to pay for that. And then until yeah. 2004, there has been this found Sunduk Lit'alim. And they were given on the sort of now it's getting better because of 2011 and they have been pressure on that. But we do were denied right to education, and, and even though, um, well, even more, they were deprived after 18, deprived um, the right to go to university. And yeah, at the time, yeah. there was no, no private university in Kuwait. So. 
I've just been kind of listening. I, I don't know. I think maybe it would be good to begin to think along these lines of different grades of citizenship and where you can fit in how different people choose their identities um, to fit cer certain circumstances and certain demands and times. So I don't know if that maybe is a way to get away from, as you're saying, being kind of locked in this... Um, sort of Eurocentric, Europe has decided all of this. How do we um, begin to conceptualize citizenship in a different way from just what's imposed upon um, former colonial territories, I guess, from above? Um, and I guess where acts of citizenship come into this is kind of the collective way that people can decide these grades of citizenship, grades of nationality, grades of choosing identities. but. I guess that had nothing to do with my papers. So. <laughs> it's nice. um, but yeah, yeah, that. that. <laughs>